this is a classic because Hannah Moore's heightened language is beautiful, accessible, and passionate. This is a classic because it is a six-person mm. verse play. This is our history. This is our legacy. quick heads up that we are going to be talking about suicide in this podcast so if that's triggering to you just a little heads up to take care of yourself in whatever way you need hello and welcome to this is a classic the expand the canon theater podcast we're your hosts sky pagan curator for expand the canon and member of Hedgepig ensemble and me emily lyon artistic director of Hedgepig and curator for expand Woo. the canon thank you Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. And today, we are looking at a versatile verse play, Fatal Falsehood by Hannah Moore. If you want a high-octane alternative to Two Gentlemen of Verona, consider this tight roller coaster of a poetic play instead. Here, two of the closest friends fall deeply in love with the same woman— Spurred on by an Iago-like character, the plot careens towards a tragic end, yet each character reflects on the ramifications of their actions, which makes it all the more impactful. Fall in love, and out, with this epic tale of romance and duty. Undeniably, the poetry of this play is one of its biggest strengths, so be careful of confusing it with the bard. Bonus, 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 with some minor cuts to avoid a puzzling suicide, this tragedy could easily be presented as a dark comedy. Ooh. Love a play with the range. Right? Do it in rep. <laughs> do, it in, do it in rep. Do it in rep with itself. <laughs> dum, dum. Sky, I have so many feelings and thoughts about this play. It was so fun to reread this play and also to mm-hmm. pin down the, as we're saying about its versatility, like trying to pin down the tone of this play and how it should feel and how it should look. I think it is so open. The language of this play is poetic and exciting and heightened but also is like very clear for verse and very accessible Mm -hmm. and yet I think it could be played deeply investigating the emotions and the emotional truths for these like deeply passionate people I think it could also be sort of in a two gentlemen of Verona way like a little bit tongue-in-cheek the versatility of this play fascinates me and i'm so excited to talk to you about it (laughs) (laughs) to your point there's the thing that's sort of interesting to me about this is a lot of the time traditional shakespearean tragedies there's still sort of like the comic scene the clown character Mm. and in this play it's sort of unrelentingly heightened the stakes are so high from pretty much you know the first scene and not that there aren't jokes or anything like that but because it is so high octane the razor of of it being the tragicest tragedy to it being like camp is pretty fine it could be so insanely funny almost in a really twisted way you'd have to deal with as we said some of the stuff at the end although emily you are working on a cute little cut for our website yeah you, that addresses it's some of that already stuff? up <gasps> okay taking taking a brief turn into this conversation as we mentioned in the in the sort of summary 
there is a quote puzzling suicide and again sort of depending on the day sometimes I feel like that is right and that is earned and having Mm -hmm. dug into Hannah Moore's background I kind of get why she would have gone there and so you can definitely go with the whole huge tragic ending or you can also go to this like sort of simplified ending of peace and justice and acceptance and forgiveness you know back in I think the 1800s there was a whole like it was in vogue to take Shakespeare's tragedies and make them comedies like you're gonna take King Lear and be like just kidding the ending is totally not that they all live it's a super different play in that but I so I felt sort of goofy being like one of those dudes being like it's fine I'll just fix this ending Mm -hmm. snip snip however at the same time I feel like this play the meaning of it and the experience of it doesn't vary quite so massively depending on the ending so I would love listeners if you go and you read both of these endings please tell us what do you like what are you going to choose what would you prefer to do Another aspect of this play that I think is really important and that I actually really love is the two dudes have this very loving friendship. And it's like, I mean, I think you can always make the argument that there's something queer, romantic there, but there's also a very strong argument that it's just like this very tender platonic friendship where they really love each other. And so that when this guy, Orlando, at the end feels he has let down his best friend, he feels like the only way out is to end his life. And obviously that's an awful decision that's really tragic but is also like i think understandable if you frame it to a modern audience as like you betrayed the one person who loved you and trusted you and who you loved and trusted above every everyone else it's a very heartfelt play the 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 relationships between the characters are very real and very emotional and i i love that yeah i want to get back to something you said earlier too that this play doesn't have the sort of side plots the like a b plot and the sort of comic characters mm-hmm. this play like packs it all in i think a lot of the characters have these moments of levity and heart and earnestness and sort of sometimes goofiness and they also mm-hmm. all have these moments of passion and integrity and fire which is very cool and fascinating as is it's set up in a very different way than a lot of comedies or tragedies from the Shakespearean canon and it also makes it way more producible for for right now having Mm. six characters instead of 12 16 18 it's just a much tighter story that way also like you have a great Iago character which we haven't talked about like who doesn't love an Iago track Um, and what I love about this Iago character is his opening speech is so killer he like comes out and he's like no one will suspect me because i'm kind of an idiot it's like it's so good it's it's like like the iago track is like no one will suspect me because i'm so wily and the bertrand who's the iago character in this play the bertrand version of that is like no one will suspect me because everybody overlooks me and everyone thinks i'm incompetent and i think that's really fascinating the careless bertrand Um, the honest undesigning plain blunt man yeah Yeah. of like it seems like i'm not hiding anything because i just like blab too much (laughs) yeah it's a good good method good method yeah i mean it's just like a, a play about friendship also which i love the two women are really close the two male romantic leads are really close there's also like 
a dad who isn't a terrible father, which is always is nice. nice. I feel like in a lot of the tragedies, you have that father figure who's like kind of a douche, and this one like really loves his kids and want them to be happy, um, which is always nice. Yeah, and both of the women have a lot of integrity in this play. They're mm. definitely both like Emelina and Julia are both fiercely loyal and loving and have their moments of weakness, but also have a deep sense of strength and what they want and who they are. And I think that that's lovely and exciting to see. I don't know. I think playing Emelina would be kind of badass, even whether or not you do. Yeah. With either ending you do, I think Emelina is a pretty fun character. Emelina is sort of the Ophelia track almost in this play. Yeah, but it's like Ophelia mixed with Celia from As You Like It or something. Yeah, yeah. It's really neat. Yeah, it's like Ophelia, if Ophelia was like a little bit older, a little bit more emotionally mature. History. What is this play about? Who are these people? Cool. So the play opens with Bertrand, our Iago character, who is in love with Emelina and Mm. is hoping to set up some schemes to get what he wants. So we, we know that he's the one, he's the one to watch. Emelina is good friends with Julia, who is not her sister, but is practically her sister. Julia is her father's ward. Emelina is the actual daughter of Guilford. And Guilford has just Emelina and Rivers, his son, who is away at war. And Rivers, of course, is engaged to Julia and they're in love. Mm. Yes. And they get to get married when he comes back home having triumphed in war, which luckily we know he mm. has. How do we know that? Um, we know that because he sent Orlando, his best friend, who is also an Italian count. Sexy. Right? Yes. So Orlando, super attractive Italian count, um, has come to stay with Guilford, partially because Rivers, his son, uh, Guilford's son and Orlando's best friend, saved his life in battle. And Rivers was like, go tell my dad, I'm okay, I'm coming home, everything's going to be good. Also, just like introducing this sort of honor code stuff of Julia gets to marry Rivers when he comes back from battle because Julia's father, who had been Guildford's army buddy, wanted Rivers to like prove himself in battle before he could marry his daughter, Julia. So like setting up early on this idea of like, Brothers at arms, honor, proving yourself, valor, that sort of thing. Absolutely. So those are that's our cast of characters. So Emelina, of course, is deeply in love with our Italian count, Orlando. She can't even say his name. She's like so embarrassed. Oh my god, it's, it's so weird. cute. I forgot about that scene. <laughs> <laughs> right? And they were kind of courting, flirting. Um, but lately, Orlando has been, he used to like, tell all these stories about Rivers and loved talking about him and was just so proud to have been in battle. He's Orlando has become kind of sad and melancholy. We find out it's because he has fallen in love with Julia. <sighs> yeah, right. So this is the the two gentlemen of Rona of it all. He's not supposed yeah. to be in love with Julia. He was he was good with Emelina until Julia showed up on the scene and he was like, oh no. This is when if I was a DJ, I would play Jesse's girl. But <laughs> sadly. <laughs> so we find out that Rivers is going to return for more, and he does. It's kind of sudden, it's kind of amazing. And Orlando 
can't take it anymore. Orlando feels so guilty for falling in love with Julia. And he like, he's overwhelmed with passion. So he's just gonna leave. He's gonna head out. It's so good to see you, buddy. But I can't do this. We should say Julia doesn't know any of this. Right. Julia has no idea that Orlando's in love with her. Totally, totally. And Emelina doesn't know, but very quickly suspects um Mm -hmm. so kind of in this whole conversation emelina's sort of like mentioning well then julia showed up and then he kind of got weird so i think she she has a sense yeah but when orlando tells bertrand of course who he's gotten to be friends with because bertrand's wily that iago guy bertrand Mm -hmm. convinces him to stay just for for one more day and he, he says, okay, Orlando asked Julia to delay the marriage for one day and I'll handle everything. And Orlando agrees. And we find out in another sort of wily side monologue, if Rivers dies, Bertrand will inherit all of Guilford's lands. Because even though he has a daughter, <sighs> haha, ladies can't have land. And he's like hoping no. to marry her anyway, because he's a little creep sauce. <laughs> you know tell me i'm wrong <laughs> tell me i'm wrong <laughs> so emelina is also excited to see her brother but her brother is asking around being like hey what happened to orlando and that's when she says you know julia showed up and well dot 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 rivers is sort of in denial he's not super jazzed about the idea that maybe his bestie is in love with his fiance which fair right like not great news um, especially when you just got home and you just want to be happy, yeah. you know. So he kind of, but he kind of shakes it off. Is in denial. Then Emelina does have a very sweet scene where she talks to Orlando about it, who is not a great liar. He basically kind of admits it, and she she leads him to to talk about Julia, and it's so clear that he is in love with her. Oh, yeah. So then again, Orlando's like, look, I just gotta take myself out of this equation. I gotta go. And of course, as soon as he is saying that, Rivers comes and is finally excited. He's like, so good to see you. You can't leave right before my wedding, which is apparently literally today. The day he returns, he's going to marry Julia, because they're just super psyched. Man on mission. That's right. That's right. Focused. So focused. No, you have to leave? Okay, well, I will call Julia literally right now, and we'll get married literally right now before you leave. Um, so it's really... It, I <gasps> love the sense of um, of commitment to the bit there, uh, and that's where I think some of this comedy can kind of come in. But yeah, I think it's, it's kind of very silly. River's mm-hmm. kind of dense, and he still thinks and or hope that Orlando's in love with Emelina, and I'm just like, yeah, yeah. Um, I gotta go. So <laughs> just getting right out uh, of there. Right. Um, the wedding is still theoretically on, but Orlando again in emotional fraught time then stumbles upon Julia. Like this man cannot get out of conversations he does not want to have. So Orlando <laughs> is thinking about maybe he should just kill himself. He's like getting real, real upset. And Julia is concerned about him, of course, as only like nice human being who is a friend would be. And he, Orlando starts telling her that she's got to push back the wedding for a day or else River's life is at stake. And she has waited so long for River. She loves him so much. She's like, no, no, no. Okay. If his life is at stake, fine, fine. I'll push it back. Then of course, Julia leaves crying, upset, but like hopeful that she's saving River's life. Bertrand comes in and 
basically says a bunch of other junk to Orlando. Like creep sauce. That she exactly creep sauce. That she mentioned something of like, oh, if only I could choose who I was wedded to. And he's like, no, she didn't say that. And we, the audience, are like, we know she didn't say that. You're right. You believe yourself. But Bertrand's, he's a sneaky dude. Sneaky dude. Creep sauce. Anyway, Orlando is spurred on a little bit. We, now we're into act four. And we've discovered through Guilford, our father figure, that Orlando has refused to marry Emelina which is kind of what everyone was banking on <sighs> and hoping for. And we also find out that Julia has in fact come to put off the wedding. Also like worth sliding into those DMs to be like reminder, classical play. Like if you're sort of going around courting a lady and then you refuse to marry her, that's a big deal on Emelina's honor. That makes her look bad. So yeah. this is a big deal. Everyone's really upset. <laughs> it's super mortifying for Emelina, for sure. Yeah. And I think Orlando feels pretty guilty about it. Guilford's upset. Everyone is, like, just not taking it well. No. Oh, yeah. So then Bertrand came to tell Rivers that Julia has, like, changed whatever that means. Like, she, she put off the wedding and... Rivers is all upset, saying like, "Oh, well, she'll she's probably being like dishonest. There's something, there's something sketchy here. Mm-hmm. I don't trust her. This is bad. She wants to put out the wedding for literally one day. How dare she? Um, I know. Uh, so clearly, there's something terrible must be afoot. Everyone is super level headed in this play. If you can't, <laughs> it's very like heart forward people. Orlando ends up meeting Julia again, and this time he admits that he loves her." And she is put off by that. It's super weird. Like, what a weird thing to be told. And she has this great line that is basically like, repent and think better. And goes off to then just kind of be in her room and be like, I can't deal with either of you men. You're both being nutty. So Rivers then finds Orlando and challenges him to a duel like you've messed with the honor of my sister you're apparently in love with my fiance like not not okay we're gonna fight we're gonna deal with this with honor emelina runs in and interrupts the fight and basically says like i love you both too much like please don't do this because again the women are Mm level-headed it's so cool like if you think women are the emotional ones lol please take a read of fatal falsehood (laughs) also like like i love that for emelina because like at this point like she has been brokenhearted she has been humiliated all these things and she still runs in and is like do not do this for me do not do this on my account like i want no part of this she's a super you know i hate the phrase strong woman because i think it's like what does that mean (laughs) what does that mean every woman i know is strong And they're strong in different ways and in different moments. And this is definitely one of her strong, her moments of strength where Mm -hmm. she gets to um, just go above and beyond herself and care for both of these men that she still loves. Yeah. So luckily she gets them to agree to a peace. But as soon as she leaves, Rivers is like, I gotta go or else maybe I'll go back on it. (laughs) Yeah. Which respect, take yourself out of a tense situation. <laughs> totally, right? Like, know, know thyself. And, of course, Bertrand is like, how are these two men still alive? I totally was going to get them to kill each other with this stupid lie so I could have Emelina and all the lands. But, okay, fine. Here's my new plot. Julia, in some, like, silly, trusting way, has handed Bertrand a letter to give to Rivers. But she did not write Rivers on the copy, on the cover of the letter. So it just says, to my lord, 
And so he gives it to Orlando, pretending that she had written it to him, which is pretty sneaky. And Julia, exactly. So Julia, in the letter, had asked Rivers to meet her at the pavilion, I think at midnight, um, so they could get married and talk and like just fix everything. But Orlando's like, okay, I'm going to go. I shouldn't do this, but I got to do it for love. And thus, thus begins the plot. Uh, Bertrand also has like, of course, told Orlando that this is a great idea, that he should meet her and steal her away. And also that he's going to prepare a bunch of soldiers to help Orlando steal her away, which is also like a weird move. Like Orlando, you should have seen that that was a bizarro choice, but okay. So finally, we're in Act 5. That night, Rivers is pacing outside near the pavilion where they're going to get married. And he apparently doesn't, like, look inside to discover that Julia's there. But okay. So he's real upset. Bertrand has, again, gathered these soldiers. And Orlando is also outside the pavilion. They run into each other, Rivers and Orlando. And they have actually kind of a very nice interchange, which makes Orlando feel even more guilty. Bertrand then is like, okay, hey, Orlando, take my sword just in case, which Orlando finds sketchy, but accepts. So he goes then to find Julia and is is in this like spiral of guilt and passion and just thinking about what he's going to do. And he's kind of manic, manic Mm -hmm. about it all. It reminds me of the Macbeth speech where he's like, I am steeped in gore and like it would require as much of me to go back at this point. So I might as well keep going. Mm. Yes, that is like, that's a great comparison to what it seems like Orlando is feeling here. Yeah. So far gone. So then we see Julia waiting for Rivers when all of a sudden Orlando shows up bloody (gasps) and he's committed murder. And he is asking her also like, why why have you spurned me onto this? Why did you send me this letter? And she reveals, of course I didn't send you a letter. I sent it to Rivers. And Orlando then puts it together. Ugh, Bertrand has been messing with all of us because he's the one who gave it to me. Clearly this was all a mistake. Then Rivers arrives. He hasn't actually been murdered by Orlando. It turns out Orlando in the dark, yay, yay darkness, killed Bertrand thinking he was Rivers. So Orlando ended up killing Bertrand with his own sword. (sighs) Rivers coincidentally stumbled upon the body and heard Bertrand's confession of his deeds with his dying breath. So all has been sort of sorted out. And then now here you get to choose your own ending. Um, In the traditional ending that Hannah Moore originally wrote, Emelina enters and she's she's lost she's in the way of ophelia like mentally gone and she dies she dies of love and guilt and upset and orlando can't take the guilt of that and he commits suicide so that's option one or if you want to go for the that's a puzzling suicide version you can opt for the edit where Rivers and Julia get married and everyone kind of chills out and Orlando goes in to watch them be married. So player's choice, player's choice. This is where you get to decide what you think is most, most just, most poetic. And if we want to see another lady go crazy over men, which is I think why I initially made that cut. I don't need to see quite so Mm. much of that, but they're both poetic. So you do you. Legacy.
Okay. Sky, can I tell you about Hannah Moore? Yeah, you can. I am so excited. Tell me more. Ha ha. <laughs> oh, I love that. So Hannah Moore is a fascinating character and sort of what I what I think is so interesting is like this play, I can't totally tonally figure her out. Mm. She's a prolific writer. I think she had great intentions for society. And also, you know, one word that gets used for her a lot is that she had conservative morals. Hmm. And to me, I always wonder, like, well, what what does that mean? That can look like a lot of different things. And what did it mean in the in the 17 and 1800s? So I'm just going to put like some of her morals at the top of this bio so that you know kind of what to listen for as that comes up. She was very dedicated to improving the conditions of the poor. And she really thought that education was a big way to do that. So that's pretty great. And she thinks women and girls should be educated and that they should be proud of themselves and they're and proud to work hard for a living as many women had to do and to think beyond money and status and looks and that that's the only way to move up in the world. Mm. She also was a major abolitionist and she wrote poems against slavery, but she also is like anti revolutionary she's basically writing a treatise against a revolution happening in england and i don't know what to think about that so hannah moore fascinating prolific woman who i respect and can't quite nail down so here we go hannah moore was born in 1745 in england and she was the fourth of five daughters which is already fun so so many so many girls and i think little women vibes yes yes totally and her dad jacob moore was a teacher at a boys school and her family including her older sisters opened a girls boarding school and she continued to open schools throughout her life so education a theme from the beginning. So then in 1767, so she's 22, she gets engaged to William Turner, who is a man who's older than she is, but he keeps putting off the marriage and he keeps putting on off for six years. Um, and there's not a lot of information there, but there are a couple different tellings. They break off the engagement in 1773. So she's like engaged to this dude for six years and he's like putting off the date, putting off the date. And in some tellings, like she had a nervous breakdown about it and like had to go recuperate. But in some tellings, she's a strong negotiator and somehow got him to, even though they called off the wedding, he ends up paying her a 200 pound annuity Hmm. every year. So she then has financial freedom. You know, she doesn't have to get married and she vows to never get married and she doesn't. So this, I think, is such a fascinating moment in her life that sets the course for sure. 1773 is a big year for Hannah because, again, her marriage is broken off. But it's also when she starts writing. When she starts writing plays and her first play she publishes is called The Search After Happiness. And then she goes on to write Percy, which is a huge hit. And apparently Mozart died with a copy of it in his belongings. So she is, she's making bank, like her plays are published frequently and she's getting a quite a bit of influence in society. Thousands of people are buying up copies of her works. So she ends up making 30,000 pounds in sales of, of her published works. Oh my God. Do you know what that would be now? No, I should look up the conversion rate. But a lot. But a lot. I think that's like at least close to like a million pounds or something. Yeah. 
So she is a huge deal. She's also, you probably heard the the term blue stocking. Oh, yes. Yes. So she's an actual member of the blue stockings. She's, she's one of them. She's one of them. She is a person and not a piece of clothing. But the blue stockings were this literary group of brilliant women who they also, again, say are conservative. And to them, what that means is like they define themselves by being against drinking and gambling and idleness, shallow gossip. So they prefer to have tea and discuss intellectual matters. And it's interesting because a lot of times now blue stocking is sort of like a term with some shade to it that you're kind of boring and snooty, but intellectual. It feels like how liberal has become, I don't know, an insult at times if people yeah. want to use it that way. So take that as you will. Mm. So she's writing these plays um, and she's writing poetry and all kinds of things, but her final play is Fatal Falsehood. It's the last play she ever writes. Well, it's the last play she writes for the stage. And she ends up, and this is some of my favorite Expand the Canon gossip. Ooh. Um, yes. Yes. Oh, so is this the Cowley you, stuff? Yes. Oh my gosh. You may remember from our 2020 list, Hannah Cowley was one of our writers. She wrote A Bold Stroke for a Husband. And she gets in a paper war, quote, quote, with Hannah Moore about plagiarism. So Hannah Cowley had written this play, Albina, which she had published three years before it actually got staged. So it got staged in 1779, in July of 1779. But supposedly the script had been making some rounds. And so Cowley thinks that... Hannah Moore has ripped off some of her ideas from Albina for both Percy and Fatal Falsehood. And Hannah Cavalier writes this like public letter claiming that Hannah Moore has stolen her ideas and is like ripping her off for, for her work, which is so, it gets really intense. And they're writing these pamphlets back and forth and these open letters. <gasps> It's like Twitter beef of the 18th century. <laughs> exactly. So they're going back and forth and they both get kind of shady where Hannah Cowley's like, well, okay, maybe she didn't literally copy the the words, but I'm sure recollection, she writes, recollection is too frequently mistaken for the suggestions of imagination. Like you did not come up with this <sighs> yourself. Somebody told you about my play and then you wrote the same thing. And it's so interesting, like reading way more shade it's like bad art friend <laughs> exactly yep and then <laughs> hannah moore is writing like well this is all just advertising for miss Kelly's play for many will buy it merely to read the preface <gasps> yep oh my god and then later hannah moore is like well perhaps miss Kelly's spite is due to her penury like she is poor she doesn't have the like tons oh. of money that i do and so she needs to rip people off oh my god just so the level of scandal but here's the other funny part to me so they're going back and forth about like was fatal falsehood ripping off albina and it turns out neither were a success so here are these two women like sort of ripping each other to shreds and neither of their plays were received as like totally awesome so funny to have these two writers on our lists in in contention i love that for us right me too now, sadly, after Fatal Falsehood, Hannah Moore never writes plays for the stage again. She gives it up. So that whole kind of kerfuffle really ended her stage play work, which is sad. 
But she goes on to continue to be a deeply prolific writer. She also turns to religion very strongly after this. And again, we know she's she's got some money. And not only money, but influence. And so the preachers, like the, the religious teachers she's going to, are really encouraging her to use her standing in society to affect positive change. So she, she keeps mm-hmm. opening schools and Sunday schools that are really focused on educating young girls and the poor. She writes an influential poem, Slavery, about abolition and um, arguing for abolition. She then wrote, under a male pseudonym, Will Chip a Country Carpenter. She does most certainly not. She wrote this book pamphlet, Village Politics, and that's a rebuttal to Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man. Ooh. Yeah, which is fascinating. Like, Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man have been credited for, like, so many revolutionary ideas. And here she's being like, um, have you really thought that through, though? It's a very popular piece, and thousands of people buy this this book and credit her with preventing some of that revolutionary feeling. So village politics was deeply successful. She's really, she gets into this practice of writing for the common man and to educate them and and influence them basically. So after that was super successful in 1793, she starts writing these cheap repository tracts, which is like not the sexiest term I've ever heard for sure. Um, but basically they're they are as they say cheap they're only a penny and they're lessons and these were printed they were massive massive printings and they sold in millions and she wrote um she didn't write all of them there were like more than 200 over 22 years where these tracts these pamphlets basically are little stories that are morals and educational often with sort of a, a slight religious underpinning but they were written to to have common language and to be really understandable for those who weren't highly educated. And so this is one of her big moves to try and help the help the poor and and distribute educational texts to them because this was a time where most most children weren't going to school, especially poor children. And she really wanted to to change that. So this was one of her approaches and went on for 22 years and was hugely successful, had a incredible impact on the social tone of society and she's credited with helping set the socially conservative tone of 1800s britain and again it's like what exactly does all that mean she's accused in 1799 of being a methodist which is apparently like as in like the yes she's accused of methodism with the blagden controversy and i was like oh my gosh we don't need to go into all this she she writes one novel which immediately becomes a bestseller so fascinating again she's writing under a pseudonym but it still goes on to Mm. become a bestseller so clearly she just really knows how to appeal to the british populace and she keeps writing and supporting schools creating schools until her death in 1833 and there was one story that supposedly her last word being upon being called up to heaven was joy yeah so she had a a very influential impactful and kind of heavy hitting life I don't know. I think she's a pretty fascinating lady. I don't feel like I know what it would be like to have a conversation with her over tea, but I would love to. Yeah, she's a a complex, dynamic lady. And she's got some beef. She's got some beef, yes. 
again, I, I think it's such a fun pair of like her complex biography and tonal, tonal curiosity of her life compared with the sort of tonal curiosity of this play as well, which is very passionate, but also moral, but also like dramatic. It's mm. just like feels right in line with my experience of, of this text as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that is Anna Moore. And now we have a scene from the play. So this is Orlando and Emelina. And Orlando had previously wooed Emelina, but is now in love with his best friend's fiance, Julia. His best friend has just returned from war and everyone is celebrating except for these two who snuck out together to have a conversation. So here we have Orlando read by Javen Nelson and Emelina read by Madeline Adams. Why do my feet unbidden seek this grove? Why do I trace his steps? I thought him here. This is his hour of walking and these shades his daily haunt. Oft have they heard his vows. Ah, fatal vows which stole my peace away. But now he shuns my presence. Yet who knows? He may not be ungrateful, but unhappy. Yes, he will come to clear his past offenses. With such prevailing eloquence will plead. So mourn his former faults. So blame his coldness. And by ten thousand graceful ways repair them. That I shall think I never was offended. He comes... And every doubt's at once dispelled. Twas fancy all. He never meant to wrong me. <sighs> oh, tell me why at this auspicious hour you quit the joyful circle of your friends and leave a void in in the happiest hearts, an aching void which only you can fill. Why do you seek these unfrequented shades? Why court these gloomy haunts unfit for beauty? but made for meditation and, uh, misfortune. I might retort the charge, my lord Orlando. I might inquire how the loved friend of Rivers, whom he has held deep-rooted in his heart, I might inquire why, when this Rivers comes, after long, tedious months of expectation, alive, victorious, and as firm in friendship, I might inquire why thus Orlando shuns him, why thus he courts this melancholy gloom, as if he were at variance with delight, and scorned to mingle in the general joy? Oh, my fair monitress, I have deserved your gentle censure. Henceforth, I'll be gay. Julia complains, too, of you. Oh, does Julia? If Julia chides me, I have erred indeed. For harshness is a stranger to her nature. But why does she complain? Oh, tell me, wherefore? That I may soon repair the unwilling crime and prove my heart at least ne'er meant to wrong her. Why so alarmed? Alarmed? Indeed, you seemed so. Sure, you mistake. Alarmed? Oh, no, I was not. There was no cause. I could not be alarmed upon so slight a ground. Something you said, but what, I know not, of your friend. Of Julia. That... Julia was displeased, was it not so? Twas that, or something like it. She complains that you avoid her. How, that I avoid her? Did Julia say so? <laughs> you have forgot, it could not be. Why are you terrified? No, not terrified, I am not. But were those her very words? You might mistake her meeting. Did Julia say Orlando shunned her presence? Oh, did she? Could she say so? 
If she did, why this disorder? There's no cause. No cause? Oh, there's a cause of dearer worth than empire. Quick, let me fly and find the fair abrader. Tell her she wrongs me. Tell her I would die rather than meet her anger. Oh, she faints. What have I said? Curse my imprudent tongue. Look up, sweet innocence, my Emmelina. My gentle friend, awake. Look up, fair creature. Tis your Orlando calls. Orlando's voice. Methought he talked of love. Nay, do not mock me. My heart is but a weak, a very weak one. I am not well. Perhaps I've been to blame. Spare my distress. The error has been mine. So then, all's over. I've betrayed my secret and stuck a poisoned dagger in her heart, her innocent heart. Why, what a wretch am I. Gorgeous. Thank you so much to Madeline and Javen for that lovely read. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. Learn more at expandthecanon.com. And if you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit the share button and forward it along to a friend, colleague, professor, people in your life who like verse. All the things. And for info on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram. At Hedgepig Ensemble Theater with an R-E. With an RE or Facebook slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or you can join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by donating at the link in the comments below. Once again, folks, I'm Sky Pagan. And I'm Emily Lyon. And thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Woo! Dum, dum.